All right, please stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. We'll read verses 1 through 16, and then we'll turn to Psalm 45. All right, let's pray one more time. Our Father in heaven, now as we read the scriptures, we pray that you would make them clear to us, that you would shine a light on them through the Holy Spirit and also shine a light in our hearts to, so that our understanding would not be darkened by our sin and our ignorance and our distractions, uh, but you would bring clarity. The unfolding of your word gives light. Please do that among your people tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Let's turn now to Psalm 45. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. 
you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. There's a very profound statement at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul tells us that after Christ ascended into heaven, God the Father put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. What does that mean? The Bible uses a lot of images for the relationship between Jesus and and the church, he's the cornerstone, and we're the temple made out of living stones. Um, we're the body, he's the head, we're the sheep, he's the shepherd, he's the vine, we're the branches. And each of those images gives us a different insight into who Christ is and how glorious and uh, wonderful he is in our relationship with him. But, of course, one of the sweetest and, and really most pervasive images in the Bible for the relationship between um, him and his people is the imagery of marriage, that he is the groom, and we, collectively, are the bride. The church is the bride. And what we want to understand is that that word picture also shows us something unique. Not just about our relationship with Christ, but about Christ himself in a way that none of the others do. It reveals to us how great and good he is 
uniquely by showing us the beauty of his love for us. Charles Spurgeon wrote that, yes, Jesus is lovely everywhere and from every point of view, but never more so, never more so than when we view him in marriage union with his church. And why is that? The reason is because then, I love this, then love gives a ravishing flush of glory to his loveliness. Jesus is always, in every respect, perfect and glorious and mighty and beautiful in every way. But he shows us that glory and he helps us to appreciate it, especially when we see him revealed as the heavenly husband of the church. Remember, the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And thinking from an eternal point of view about Christ, the divine son, Christ, according to his divine nature, needs nothing. He needs no one. He does not need his creatures in order to be who he is or to do what he does. He's the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit have perfect communion and fellowship. They are self-sufficient. They don't need us in order to be happy. We wouldn't say quite the same thing in quite the same, th- same, same way about Christ the Redeemer, the God-man. Because Christ our Redeemer, our Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, desires and longs for his church. And there's a sense in which he, as the Redeemer, is incomplete without her. Not as God. God is completely sufficient in himself. But the church is his fullness. And he longs for her like a husband longs for his wife. And it's, it's mysterious. We want to be very careful about the way that we put that. But I think that we see it revealed to us in part in this psalm as that as the psalm is unfolded for us in the New Testament and the rest of the scriptures. Let's look at this psalm tonight in three parts. First of all, the king's might and majesty. It's verses 1 through 5. Second, the king's identity and destiny, verses 6 through 9. And then third, the bride's duty and delight, verses 10 to 17. So the king's might and majesty, the king's identity and destiny, and the bride's duty and delight. All right, so first, that might and majesty of the king. Verse 1, the poet starts by describing how full his heart is. Uh, he's, He's talking about himself and his creative process here. The poetry is just welling up inside him. It's overflowing out of his heart because what he's about to write about is so beautiful. It's so good that he he can't hold it in. Poetry, of course, um, as it's different from prose, poetry deals mostly in images, in word pictures. And the central word picture for this psalm is a royal wedding. And so in verse 2, the poet begins with a description of the groom, the royal groom, the king. And he starts with his physical appearance. He says he's the most handsome of the sons of men, with grace poured on his lips, blessed by God. Um, when, he says, when he says, therefore, God has blessed you, it's not saying that God has blessed him because he's good looking. Instead, the king's physical appearance is, is, is uh, the, the evidence of the way that God has blessed him. You look at 
He's, he's looking at this king and saying, this is a person who's blessed by God. You can just tell by looking at him. And so that, therefore, is marking a conclusion. Um, so he starts with the king's handsomeness, this physical attractiveness. And, um, of course, you might think, well, that, that's very superficial to focus on him being handsome, good-looking. But, of, of course, in the, in the context, we're seeing this as part of a complete picture of, of reflecting on his full-orbed uh, um, uh, glory and majesty that is his because he has been blessed uh, by the Lord. Um, and so it's uh, important that as we go on, though, that we see what kind of physical attractiveness this is. It's not a soft, um, kind of decadent kind of physical attractiveness. This is also a very powerful person, a powerful person. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. And you can remember, you've probably seen like portraits of a king and his full regalia, his full military regalia, including maybe a sword next to him, decked out in his most splendid-looking uh, military uniform. And, and everything that he's wearing symbolizes and makes evident and kind of illuminates the power and the dignity of this mighty royal person um, and his office, his office as the leader of his nation. That, is, that belongs to him, that he's inherited this, this duty, this vocation, this calling as who he's been called to be for the sake of, of his people. Now, you can have a good-looking person um, who isn't very strong. In the same way, you can have a very strong person who doesn't use his strength for good. Either he's strong but kind of useless because he, he wastes it, or he's strong and quite dangerous because he uses that strength um, to uh, oppress others. Uh, and you could think, for example, of Saul as, the, as, as an example of somebody who's, remember he, how he's a head taller than all the other Israelites. Um, he's good looking um, on the outside. But of course, God doesn't look on the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart, Samuel says, or the Lord tells Samuel. Um, and so by that measure... The inward measure, Saul comes up short compared to David. This king, though, is not like Saul. That's one way to put how he's being described. He's not like Saul. He's, this king is handsome, he's strong, and he's good. And he's good. And your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. And so the psalmist is calling on him to do faithfully what the kings of Israel are supposed to do which is they're supposed to defend the truth. They are to defend the weak. They are to uphold the law of God. They are to act with righteousness and justice. And they're also supposed to carry out God's judgments on God's enemies and the enemies of his people. And so verse 5 completes this picture when he says, your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So this is a beautiful king, a blessed king, a powerful king, a righteous king, and a victorious king who is a terror to evildoers, to his enemies. Now, you might have noticed, I have the question niggling in the back of your mind because I haven't addressed it yet. So who, who is this king that we're talking about? Well, I'm going to address it now. I haven't yet because it's kind of tricky with this psalm. And the question only gets trickier when we come to verse 6. And it says, Your throne, O God, 
is forever and ever. The Hebrew word for God there is Elohim. Elohim. You may have studied the names of God before and heard this name. It's a common name when you see God with lowercase O and D in the ESV. Often it's translating the word Elohim. As opposed to the covenant name of God, it's translated the Lord with lower cap, uh, little small capital letters. And um, because of the king is addressed this way here as God, as Elohim, there are a lot of good, very good historic interpreters who at this point just want to cut through the confusion and say, it's obvious, this psalm is speaking directly and prophetically about Christ and only Christ. In fact, Christ is the only person this psalm could possibly be referring to. And they appeal especially to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And in fact, we don't do this very often, but I want you to turn there for a minute because I want you to see how the author of Hebrews uses Psalm 45. It's very important. Um, Hebrews 1, the first four verses are this very dramatic, sweeping description of Christ as the climactic revelation of God, the heir of all things. It talks about who he is as the divine son, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. It talks about what he's done, what he's become as the human son in history, making purifications for sin, sitting down at God's right hand. And then starting in verse 4, the author of Hebrews really zeroes in on all the ways the Old Testament reveals how Christ is not just one of many different heavenly beings, one of the angels, just another angel, maybe the most powerful angel or something like that. No, that's not who Christ is. He is so much more, so much better than the angels. And so in verse 5, he quotes Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so on until you get to verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so the author of Hebrews very clearly sees this psalm as speaking about Christ. course, how do we read all the Psalms? The whole New Testament repeatedly shows us that all of the Psalms are about Christ, are ultimately in various ways, in various ways for different Psalms, pointing us forward to Jesus. And so just because, the, just because a Psalm is pointing to Jesus, because the New Testament indicates that, um, that doesn't guarantee that it has no nearer-term reference for life in Old Testament Israel when it was originally written. And this is especially clear. We see this all the time in the Psalms of David. So David is frequently writing about his own experiences, running from Saul, running from Absalom, uh, dealing with other enemies, experiencing God's blessing. He's talking about his own royal office as the king of Israel, his suffering, his victories, And of all, all of those things in David's life, of course, are Old Testament pictures foreshadowing the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And that's the way the New Testament, the apostles and so on, apply those Psalms of David. They're clearly about David, and they're also clearly about Christ. And so very often, in fact, usually when we read the Psalms, we're to have that we're to read with, uh, people like to call them different horizons, a short-term horizon, a near, a near horizon, 
and a long horizon where we think, what does this psalm tell us about David? What is it telling us about his life? But then through David, through his kingship, how is it pointing us beyond that short, that near horizon to the more distant realities that it's ultimately revealing, that is foreshadowing? There's, uh, and that's not just Christ himself. We can also think about the later experiences of Israel as Israel down through the centuries would sing these psalms and they would apply to Israel's experience at those different times. And then, of course, you come to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, who, by the way, himself sang these psalms during his earthly life and ministry in the synagogue and along with his disciples. And he sang them in the first person singing about himself so often in union with his people and then brought them to fulfillment through his uh, redeeming work. And then there's also the horizon even further afield of our own experience as the church down through history, praying and singing these same psalms that apply to us. So we don't want to lose the historic reference point of how they were originally written and what the psalmist had in mind as he composed them, but then also the way the Holy Spirit, the divine author, is intending these psalms to reveal to us something about not just that time, but about Christ especially and about God's people in Christ. Okay, so... Getting back to Psalm 45, the question is, can we, can we take that multiple horizons approach with this psalm? And really, I have a lot of sympathy with the people who say, there's just no way this psalm is talking about a historic king of Israel, um, any of them between David and the exile, because it clearly calls this king God. This must be purely prophecy, looking forward just to Christ, using the imagery of a royal wedding from the time of the Davidic kings. Um, yeah. So again, I have, I have sympathy with that, and if, if we just stopped with that point of view, we would be on pretty safe ground. I'm going to push just a little bit farther. There's one point that gives me pause with that approach, and that's that the Hebrew word Elohim. Um, there's at least one other example in the Psalms of actually human rulers, human kings, being referred to as Elohim, um, without it saying that they're actually uh, divine um, arrivals of the Lord himself in an idolatrous way. This is Psalm 82, where the Lord is actually, he's critiquing, he's criticizing human rulers who are judging unjustly and showing partiality to the wicked. And he says in verse 6 of that psalm, you are gods, Elohim, sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And so the point is, it's at least possible for the word Elohim to apply to a human king without it being idolatrous or blasphemous or something like that. So I don't think we need to throw entirely out the window the idea of those multiple horizons, multiple kind of points of fulfillment for understanding the significance of this psalm, as though it had no meaning at all in its original context except to look forward to the future. I could be wrong about that. Maybe it is purely prophetic. But um, where I come down is I think that it was probably written for the occasion of a royal wedding in Israel for one of David's descendants. However, immediately after saying that, I want to say something else. I also think that it is written, perhaps for that occasion, with intentional poetic hyperbole, uh, high-flown language, larger-than-life overstatement, portraying for such an occasion what a king ought to be the ideal king, and the ideal bride. 
It's picturing both for that king who's getting married and for the people the kind of king that Israel longs for. That the groom at this wedding should be striving to be for his people and for his bride. And so you see, I I think that's actually the most effective way for us to see clearly how this psalm is pointing us to the Lord Jesus. So often we see the Old Testament reveal Christ to us not only through the successes of the kings that we read about, but through their failures and how far short they fall of what God's people need and long for, which only comes to us through Christ. And so this is a picture that no actual king of Israel could consistently and totally live up to. It's a picture that those kings should aspire to, and various kings lived it out to one degree or another. But it also highlights Israel's need for a greater and better king to come. It's when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ that then, that all that any ambiguity that might remain in verses 6 and 7 just melt away. Because they clearly apply to him in a way that they could apply to no other king. It's with him that we see coming together these two ideas that he is indeed Elohim, not just in the lower sense of a human ruler. He is the Lord, in fact. He is God. But then, isn't it wonderful how it then juxtaposes verse 7? God, your God, has anointed you. See, both these things are true of Christ. He's both God and man, the divine Son and the human Son. He is the object of our worship and the leader of our worship at the same time. God promised to David that he would never lack a man to sit on the throne. And so, in a sense, David's throne was to be forever and ever. But who actually makes that a reality, an unshakable reality? See, David's dynasty is going to last forever. Why? Because Christ's reign is going to last forever personally. David died. And so David's reign didn't personally last forever. But Christ's does. And Christ's will of his kingdom, there will be no end as Mary told, as the angel told Mary, even in the Annunciation of his birth. So the anointing also uh, is important in verse 7. You remember that both the Hebrew word Messiah and the Greek word Christ or Christos, both of them mean what? Anointed one, right? Anointed one. Um, So we want to ask, how was Christ anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions? That's something the New Testament very clearly teaches, that Christ was the anointed one, anointed with the Holy Spirit, right? Anointed with the Holy Spirit without measure, John 4.34. Beyond his companions, he has the fullness of the Spirit, and that's why he's able to pour it out upon us. And so what this psalm is doing is it's teaching us to understand Jesus, to understand Jesus as the ideal, ultimate king, both divine and human, the one who is God and who has this unique relationship with God. Beautiful, blessed, powerful, righteous, and victorious. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. What makes this psalm really stand out? There are many psalms that talk about the glories of Israel's kings, and each one is remarkable. What makes this psalm really stand out is the last way that this king is described. Of all the things that make this king amazing and awesome and attractive and inspiring, 
What's the final one? What is the climactic one that outshines them all? I shouldn't say outshines them all, but that is the one the poet really emphasizes by the where he places it. And that is seeing his queen standing beside him. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. And that's the last description we get of the glory of this king. And that brings us to the third point, which is the queen's duty and delight. Hear, O daughter. Now his attention turns to that queen. Hear, O daughter, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Uh, You may have heard some people when they read Genesis 2 about Adam and Eve, how therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Some people make a big deal out of the notion that that it's the man who's to leave his father and mother as though somehow the woman doesn't have to leave her father and mother in order to make that marriage union work. I think that's reading too much into that verse in Genesis 2. In a healthy marriage, both the husband and the wife, in a sense, leave their parents' household in order to forge a new household together. And if either one of them remains fundamentally more committed to their parents than they are to their spouse, then that's a recipe for all kinds of crossed expectations and conflict and problems in that marriage. Well, here it's the bride, not the groom, who's being called um, explicitly to, to go through that fundamental transition. And where is her ultimate loyalty? Where is she going to find from now on the center of her life? is no longer going to be with her family back at home. It's going to be in her new home with her new family, her new husband, the king. In one sense, you could call that a sacrifice, giving something up. Uh, But on the other hand, on the other side of that exchange is this wonderful prospect of experiencing the love and devotion and loyalty and in particular the desire of her husband, the king, which the psalmist is arguing is an abundantly worthwhile trade. Just as the groom is described as an ideal king, the bride is described as an ideal queen. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. And as she's led in the wedding procession to the king before her is is set this, this thrilling prospect for the future, not just for herself, but for generations to come. Because her children are, are going to become princes. By, by being married to the king, she's going to become the mother of these uh, powerful um, uh, men of the future. Her name is going to be remembered in all generations. And um, not just in Israel, it's the nations who are going to recognize how, how blessed and magnificent that she is because of her connection with this glorious king. Now, at this point, we come up against one more serious challenge in understanding this psalm. On the one hand, it's hard to imagine any man other than Christ who can match the description of the man in verses 1 through 9. But what about the bride? When we look at ourselves, and when we look at the church more broadly as it exists in the 21st century in the U.S. or around the world, and we compare what we see in our own hearts here at Resurrection and in the OPC and the church, Catholic, I guess, universal church. We compare that to this bride. I think if we're honest, it, it ought to be 
or it maybe is hard for us to see how this picture describes us. And it raises the question for us, for our is is this really the way that Jesus views his church? Is this really the way that the Lord Jesus Christ sees us? Like a groom desires and longs for his bride. So Paul is clearly teaching us that, that it is. That's what the rest of the Bible teaches, that this is how the Lord Jesus sees us. But why? How can he see us this way when there's still so much evil, so much brokenness, so much division, so much that is wrong and needs to be corrected and reformed and made right, starting with ourselves? What does Jesus see that is beautiful in us? That he would desire us, as verse 11 promises. And where does that beauty come from? And to help us with that question, I want to read to you something. This is a little bit longer quote than I would usually read from the pulpit, but it's so rich. I really want to share it with you. And this is Martin Luther. Martin Luther, um, I came across it in Spurgeon's Treasury of David, where he often will quote many different historic interpreters, and he just found a gem from Luther on this verse, verse 11, where it says, The king will desire your beauty. Luther writes this. This is a most sweet promise. We seek, naturally, a purity in ourselves. And we examine our whole life and want to find a purity in ourselves that we might have no need of grace, but might be pronounced righteous upon the grounds of our own merit. But you will certainly never become righteous by yourself and your own works. The Holy Spirit says, therefore, if you would be beautiful in the sight of God, so that all your works should please him, and he should say, your prayer pleases me. All that you say, do, and think pleases me. Proceed like this. Hear, see, and incline your ear. That's verse 10. The daughter is instructed to do. And you shall thus become all fair. You are fair, not in your own beauty, but in the beauty of the king who has adorned you with his word, because he has brought to you his righteousness, his holiness, truth, and fortitude, and all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Our beauty does not consist in our own virtues, not even in the gifts which we have received from God, but in this, our apprehending Christ and believing in him. Then it is, that we are truly beautiful, and it is this beauty alone that Christ looks upon, and no other. All of the Psalms teach us something about Christ. Many of them reveal to us the glory and the majesty and the power and goodness of Christ, our King. But Psalm 45 is special because of this. It pictures for us what it's like for the church to stand next to Christ. And not only to receive blessing and honor and everlasting happiness because we're his. That's part of it. There's no greater blessing than belonging to Christ. There's no wealth more valuable than the riches that Jesus 
lavishes on the church. There's no greater calling than being part of his mission to bring many sons to glory and to make his name known among the nations, like we see the bride having all of these sons and the nations praising her. All of those things this bride experiences through her king and husband. All of those things the church experiences through Christ. But the best thing this psalm promises that I want you to get firmly in your imagination tonight is this, that Jesus desires the church and sees us as beautiful. Not because we're naturally beautiful, but because he has made us that way by his grace, by his sacrifice on the cross that cleanses us from our sins, by his robes of righteousness like these many-colored robes of this bride that she's wearing when she's led to the king. And you remember the bride in Revelation who is then clothed with the righteous deeds of the saints, the things that we then do in union with Christ, and he receives because of our connection with him. And he, we're clothed in that beauty, but all the beauty comes from him. It's another great Luther quote, by the way, a shorter one, that God's love, as I've told you before, does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. Always remember that. God's love does not find that which is pleasing to it. He creates what is pleasing to him in us. And then he loves it and then he desires it. In other words, Jesus doesn't view or treat the church the way... You can think of a sarcastic husband who's always putting down his wife in front of other people, always pointing out her faults, never satisfied, always critical... And you need to understand as the people of God that that is not Christ's attitude towards you. That is not the way that the Lord Jesus Christ treats his bride. No, the Lord Jesus Christ loves his church and he longs for her and he desires her because he sees the best in her, the best being what he has done for her and the beauty that he has given to her through his perfect work, his perfect cleansing and his gift of the Holy Spirit, making her holy. And I will tell you that right now, in heaven, as Lord Jesus is there at God's right hand, he is, at this moment, looking forward with eager longing and expectation for that great day pictured in Revelation 21. To see the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That is a day that Jesus is waiting for and longing for like a king looking forward to his wedding day. And so what does that mean for us? The calling for us in this psalm then in response is to to respond to that love and longing that Christ has for us with a love and longing reflected back for him a love and longing that sets aside every other kind of competing love and longing that so often fills our hearts and crowds out our devotion to him. The psalm is calling you tonight to hear and consider and incline your ear to see that Jesus is beautiful and blessed and powerful and righteous and victorious and that you are his, that we are his together. And that means that our greatest happiness is going to come when we leave behind everything else that competes with Him and embrace Him alone as the center of our attention and the center 
of our affection and the center of our devotion. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm and for the unique way that it shows us uh, who Christ is, who Christ is um, with regard to his church and who we are because of our relationship with him. Lord, we thank you for the love and longing of Jesus for his bride. And Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with the love and longing for him that this psalm is designed and intended to stir up this pleasing theme in our own hearts. Do this for us, we pray, through your Holy Spirit as we reflect on this psalm now and in days to come. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.